0: Well, good morning, E.V. Free Fullerton, and Happy New Year to you too. Yeah, and praise God for the rain and the snow. We needed it, and we've been praying for it, and God is good, isn't He? So, um, please turn with me to the book of Titus. Um, The Senior Pastor Search Committee has spent time in the pastoral epistles that Paul wrote to his young apprentices, Timothy and Titus, and we're looking there because Paul gives us some guidelines as to what we're looking for in our next senior pastor. And Paul lays out qualifications and expectations and, and roles and responsibilities for, for all leaders and for the congregation too, but especially for the minister of the word. And so this morning we'd like to look at Titus two eleven 11 to 13. And at the same time, I'd like to encourage you, when you have a few minutes today, to read the whole book of Titus. It's a short book, only 46 uh, verses. Um, But there's a lot in there, so please read it, and you'll be blessed by it. But before we dive into Titus, I'd like to give you a quick update on the search uh, process. The search committee was put into place in July, and we got to work, um, and we've been uh, evaluating a lot of candidates and listening to a lot of sermons. And um, we now have a short list of candidates who are considering the possibility of coming to our church and some of those on this short list feel like they may be called, and others are still praying about it. So, so please continue praying that God will guide this process. And we are hoping that in the months of January and February that we'll have three or four of the final candidates uh, come and visit with us, um, with their spouses, uh, interview with the theology group headed up by Paul Sailhammer, Sel- the search team, and, uh, and also meet the elders. And then after that, we pray… That God will make it clear who it is that He wants to come here. Um, and so, so some are asking, how quickly can this happen, right? And, uh, and Fred, Fred and the elders, I think, are trying to speed up the process by asking members of the search team to preach on Sunday. And um, <laughs> maybe, maybe they're on to something. But this is… this is all going to happen in God's good timing. And… and… Uh, And we know in in our lives that we're totally dependent upon God, and there's some things though that we realize it more deeply, don't we? And we know that we're dependent upon God here. So let's turn to Titus 2, 11 to 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, these verses are about the grace of God and our response to it. And we can define grace as God's unmerited favor to His people. And this is His special saving grace. If you look at verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared. And what is this grace of God that appeared? Well, we just celebrated it at Christmas. This grace of God appeared— as the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came to die so that we could have life. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 9 and 10, Paul talks about this, and he says, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Jesus Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And so, in light of this grace of God, we can recognize our sin and our guilt and our disobedience to Him. And in verse 12, Paul continues that grace teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And so, after turning our backs on sin, we could start living a new godly life. And then again, with grace as our teacher and continuing in verse 12, Paul says that there's a response here. There's a response to God's grace. And that is to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. But there is more than the, just this present age. In 1 Corinthians fifteen, nineteen, Paul says this. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We know how the story ends, that Christ returns, and we have eternal life with Him, In verse 13, Paul says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this means that we live victoriously in this life and in the next. And even though we have struggles in this life, we know that we still have victory. Well, I chose these verses this morning because I think they give good instruction on what we need to teach in the church. And why we need to teach it, and very importantly, what our response is to it. What do we do with this? And later, I realized that these verses also follow the basic outline that I learned as a as a young boy um, in our uh, in our Sunday school classes in doctrine, and, and maybe you learn this too. It's the three G's of 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 guilt and grace and and gratitude, and then Paul here appropriately adds a, a fourth G, and that is glory. And so, if we can remember these four G's will have a good handle on these verses in, uh, in Titus. I remember as a young teenager um, sitting at the kitchen table working on my Sunday school homework, and, and at the Reformed church I went to, uh, we called that catechism, and kind of like an FAQ or Q&A for, for uh, Christian doctrine. But my strategy was this, to, to sit at the kitchen table after dinner because I knew that my mom would be a captive audience, and she had all the answers. And as a teenager, I just wanted the answers, right? I didn't want to think too deeply about these things. I just wanted the answers so I could move on. But even though I learned some of this theology, this head knowledge alone is just not enough, is it? I came to realize this uh, last summer when I was taking a C.S. Lewis class at Biola, and I'm almost done with my master's in Christian apologetics there. But one of my assignments was to write a paper comparing the spiritual development of Lewis to my own. And it took me several long jogs and and some reflection and deep thinking to figure this out, but I realized that as a teenager, I lived under what my mom would have called cheap grace, cheap grace. I lived as if God covered all my sin, no matter what, and that my salvation was assured so that I could do what I wanted to do. I took the the grace of God for granted, and I didn't take my own sin seriously. But that's not the way God intended it to be. And that's not what God's grace is all about. My problem was that I didn't see the magnitude of my own sin. I didn't understand or appreciate my own badness, if you will. And since I didn't appreciate my own badness, I also didn't fully understand and appreciate God's goodness and His grace. It's only when we fully grasp the reality of our sinful nature that we fully comprehend the awesomeness of God's grace. Well, thankfully, God has changed me over time, and I no longer have a cheap view of His grace, at at least not very often. And the older I get, the more I realize that my natural tendencies and and my thoughts are are not good, and my only hope is the gracious, supernatural intervention of God and His Holy Spirit. One day in glory, when we are face-to-face with the living God... We'll sin no more because we'll finally realize how dumb it is to sin against the God of the universe. Well, how about you? Have you fallen for for some form of of cheap grace in your life? Does your life reflect that you understand the significance of God's grace? Paul talked about this in uh, in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. And he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, no way. That's not what it's all about. That's not what the grace of God is about. So the main point this morning, the the main takeaway is this, that we need to let the grace of God be our teacher. One of the commentaries I read entitled this section of Titus, as grace as our teacher And that caught my attention because my mom's name was Grace, and she was a good, godly teacher. Realizing the depth of our depravity and the saving and amazing grace of God, let's live transformed lives right now as we await the second coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And with Grace as our teacher, we can turn our backs on sinful living, and we can live right now and take hold of the new godly life that God has planned for us, and we can live victoriously in this life and in the life to come. Well, we're all praying that God will bring the right man here to be our next senior pastor, and we don't know who he is, but God knows who he is, and as we appeal to God's grace and and His goodness, let's also prepare ourselves to receive this new senior pastor and his family We are recipients of God's grace, and so we also need to be conduits of God's grace. It's not intended that God's grace build up in us, but it's intended that God's grace flow through us. And so as individuals totally dependent on God's favor, let's live accordingly. Let's reflect God's grace as we receive His good gifts. And grace comes with responsibility, So let's be loving and kind and encouraging. Let's be good followers and side-by-side leaders with our new senior pastor. And let's be very slow to criticize and slow to complain and quick to serve and to be positive and united and working together in the ministry of God's church. A few days ago, I re-listened to Tim Mulhoff's sermon from December 4, and that's the sermon on critical generosity. And, and if you haven't listened to that, or, or, or even if you have, I'd recommend that you go back and re-listen if you have time, because there's a lot that applies here to us right now as we think about a new senior pastor. So in closing, the search team has yet to find a perfect senior pastor candidate. Each candidate has his strengths, but also his weaknesses. And we don't have to look too far to find in our own body and in ourselves that we also fall fall short of that mark of perfection. But we are asking this new senior pastor to join us where we are. And so let's join him where he is with the grace of God as our teacher. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you, Dan. Would you thank Dan, especially for all the hard work that he's doing in this search. It's an amazing amount of work that takes place to look for a a senior pastor, and we're grateful for his sacrifice and, and his leadership. So you realize you're a fill-in speaker when the slides keep popping up. Our next speaker will be, right? So that's, that's part of, um, you know, doing what we're doing. So one of, the, one of the many joys of living in God's grace is our identity that we have in Christ. And, but with that identity brings great responsibility as well. So who are we actually? Um, I think it's important for us to know our identity in Christ and who we are, because I think it shapes how we live and and what we do. So sometimes when we're asked that question, our, our answer might be, well, I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a veteran, even I'm a Christian. Well, in the early 1500s, when the Reformation began, Martin Luther thought that the label Christian actually ought to be replaced with the word priest. Now, I thought, why would he want that, right? Because he, uh, Luther was breaking away from the Catholic Church. Um, when, when I think of priest, I think of Catholics. And, um, and so why would he use that term? Well, let's see what Scripture has to say about our, our identity in Christ. So uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you have your Bibles out or you can see it on the screens. And let me read this to you. And this is, I want you to, to, to just stop for a moment and think, okay, this is who I am. This is so important for us. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into this wonderful light. So there's, there's five main thoughts really behind the, the idea of the priesthood of believers and why Luther thought that we should all be called priests. So let me give those to you. The first one is that all of us are in full-time ministry. We're all in full-time ministry. The second is we are all equal in the body of Christ. We all have access to God. All of us have access to God. We don't have to go through anybody for that access. We offer sacrifices to God. We just did that a few minutes ago in, in our giving. And Romans even talks about how we're living sacrifices. And lastly, we're all called to be holy. This is the standard that God has set before us. We're not to be holier than thou, right? But we're, we're called to be holy. Now, these were things that all of the priests before Jesus' time lived out, and it's what we're to live out as well. So in the medieval church, Christians were separated by um, into secular and religious callings, as though those who decided to... Um, Work in a church or Christian ministry were somehow more spiritual than those who had a a worldly vocation. So it was against this idea that the reformers launched the biblical notion that has become known as the priesthood of the believer. Martin Luther said this Let everyone, therefore, who knows himself to be a Christian be assured of this, that we are all equally priests. Each Christian, whatever your calling, uh, serves God in that calling. Whether it's a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a student, whether you're a construction worker, I was a painting contractor for 34 years, a financial planner, a teacher or a pastor, whatever it is that you do This is a ministry to the community on God's behalf. That's what we're called to do. Um, I lost my spot here. Forgive me. But having a visual impairment has some challenges. Um, So all of us are in full-time ministry. Luther argued that God is more impressed with the milkmaid milking her cow to the glory of God than with all of the lavish and pious exercises of the monks. You know, Bach's chief ambition was to represent the Reformation both in secular and church music. As a matter of fact, he signed all of his uh, compositions with the slogan, Solae de Gloria, which means, to God alone be glory. And this should be our attitude in our work, in what we do. To God alone be the glory. A friend of mine shared a story about a um, convenience store uh, owner who had one of the largest aisles of pornography magazines that he had seen before. And behind the counter was the owner reading her Bible. So he decided to ask her, how does reading your Bible and having that aisle of magazines mix? And her response was, that's work, this is church. And I don't know about you, but I kind of gasp at that. But then I think, are we really much different than her by not recognizing that all we do is spiritual. We also many times separate our vocation from church by, seeing, by not seeing our work and everything we do as a spiritual calling. Many of us will compartmentalize our faith when in fact it's a 24-7 lifestyle. I want you to think for a minute about your expectations of our next senior pastor and his lifestyle. What do you expect from him? How do you expect him to live? That should be your expectation or that should be your lifestyle, right? Your expectation should be your lifestyle because we're no different. So all of us are called um, and we're all equal in the body of Christ. All of us have been equally made. I want to read a passage for you from Romans chapter 12. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and those members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. You see, we're to work together on an equal playing field. Every one of you here is valuable. Every one of you here is needed. The bottom line is that no one is more significant than another. Some may be more visible, but that doesn't mean more valuable. Galatians 3, uh, verse 28 says, There is no distinction for those who are in Christ Jesus. No distinction. So, whether you prepare refreshments or speak to millions, the question is are you faithful? Are you faithful to use the gifts that God has given you to expand the kingdom? The body needs all of us to be faithful. So as a, now I'm a hospital chaplain, was a painting contractor for 34 years, had my visual problems, and now I'm a, 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 a hospital chaplain. And as I see different patients, even an infected finger affects the whole body. The person can still function can still kind of do things, but that infected finger has a a tremendous impact on the body. And the body of Christ is the same when we don't live out as priests. The body of Christ will still function. God is still on the throne, but we don't function as well as we ought to. Can you imagine what it would be like if we all truly lived out the priesthood? and saw everything that we did as spiritual. That would be amazing. And that's what God intended for us. Our perspective and um, our self-talk, Tim talked a lot about our self-talk, and I think, I think that's wonderful, because I, I want to remind myself all the time of my identity in Christ. Makes all of the difference. Because people saw David as a shepherd of sheep but God saw David as a shepherd of men. People saw Peter as a fisherman, but God saw Peter as a fisher of men. People saw Paul as a persecutor of the church, but God saw Paul as an ambassador of the church. And people are gonna see you as a truck driver, a nurse, a wife, an accountant, a baseball coach, a volunteer. But God sees you as a royal priest. And we need to live in our true identity. That's our identity. So in the hospital, I have this lanyard that I wear. Put it on. It says chaplain on it. And when I wear this in the hospital... I'm very conscious of who and what I represent because it says chaplain. How different would our world look like if all of us had permanent lanyards on that said priest? How different would we live? We wear priestly lanyards. We're a part of the royal priesthood. So let's live like that. And as Peter the fisherman wrote, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Let's make 2017 that kind of a year. Let me pray for us. So Father, we thank you for our identity in you. We thank you that you have welcomed us into your household by your grace that you have made us a part of your priesthood that follows the true high priest, Jesus. And so, Father, may our lives reflect the identity that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Thank you, Fred. Yeah. Thank Fred, for thank his you. thoughts this morning. So for the last, couple of, last weekend, uh, many of us uh, spent a lot of time in Luke 2 reading about the birth of Christ. And today I want to sp- flip forward a few verses to Luke chapter 22 as we enter this time of communion this morning. Uh, Luke 22 is about the Last Supper, beginning in verse 7. It says, Then the day came of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And in verse 19, He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance. What are the things that you do in remembrance of something? Uh, Last weekend, many of us spent time marinating in traditions and family things that are in remembrance of something. A couple weeks ago, Tim shared about his grandfather who, in a Christmas that was uh, difficult with no resources found, throwaway scraps of wood that he carved into gifts to give his children when there would have otherwise been no gifts. And those gifts now serve generations as a remembrance of a grandfather's love for his children at Christmas. Uh, how many of you have things that you do in remembrance? A special food, a, a dessert, some activity that you do at Christmas in remembrance of something else Uh, our trees are filled with remembrances how many ornaments maybe of your first Christmas married or how many of you have the ornament with the little picture of a baby that's baby's first Christmas you put that on the tree in remembrance of that baby's birth maybe this year was a year that you had an empty chair at your table in remembrance of somebody who wasn't there that you wished would be there when we come to the communion table and do these things in remembrance we do them in remembrance of the greatest sacrifice that was ever given this morning we're going to take the broken bread and the cup and do this in remembrance of Jesus and God knows that we're forgetful people we need props and we need symbols of reminder and so he's established Jesus did this, this tradition that we have of doing communion in remembrance of him And it's interesting to me that in Luke 22, Jesus was gathering at another meal of remembrance, which was the Passover meal, of a time when God rescued his people out of captivity and slavery. And Jesus took that that meal and said, I now establish this as a new covenant, again of a rescue from sin and from captivity and bondage and slavery. But I establish this new covenant. Verse 19, he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Then Paul adds in 1 Corinthians, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. This morning, we have several stations scattered around the room, along the side walls, as well as up front here. We invite you to come as you feel led and as you're ready uh, to partake in communion this morning. Uh, You'll come up, take the the bread, dip it into the juice. You can take it right there. You can take it as families. there. You can go back to your seat. It's all kind of a self-serve individual this morning, but we want to have time to do that. And we'll have about 10 minutes, so there should be plenty of time for you to do that. So take some time, prepare your hearts, and then do this as a proclamation. Of your alignment with Christ this is not just a sentimental thing or a trinket we hang on a tree but this is a proclamation of your alignment and starting 2017 say I'm with Jesus I'm all in and I proclaim his death in this way go ahead start